We're going to continue in our, our series of, in Hebrews. So you can uh, either open your Bibles or follow along on screen from Hebrews 12. We're just going to read verses 1 and 2. In your Bibles, that's page 1008 in the Pew Bibles. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to start this morning just praying for folks who are um, dealing with the fires going on. Lord, we ask for your mercy and your grace at this time with folks who are affected, potentially affected by these fires, especially those who are being evacuated from their homes and going to shelters. I pray that you would especially give comfort and peace to kids there and um, ask God that you'd be with uh, those firefighters who are fighting those blazes. Pray that you would open these scriptures up to us this morning helping us to see your love for us, in Jesus' name. Uh, Two more chapters until this letter is uh, done. Uh, And so in these closing chapters, uh, the author writes to us this metaphor that's that's used here. Um, And the metaphor is a race. And actually, the author uses uh, this term, the race, And so just uh, in terms of reading, why is something there is something that always uh, comes into my mind. And so why is this metaphor used? And so when you're in a race, it's it's always dynamic, right? It's it's not a static thing. When you're in a race, you're you're doing something, otherwise you would never enter it. So and there's always this finish line, there's a purpose for the racers in the race. And ultimately for us this race is to know God, to commune with God. God who has reached out to us, gives us opportunity to have relationship with him, and and we commune with God in this journey as life, uh, as as aliens, as refugees, as sojourners. So we know this destination that we're at now isn't our end destination, that we are pilgrims traveling through this world until we are ultimately home. Now we do have hope while we live in this world, but our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, who gives us a destination, an everlasting def- destination. And prior to Jesus Christ, we, we were without God, no hope, and with no point in this race. But with Christ, the, the race now has a meaning. The journey has a purpose. And so we're given this metaphor of a race, and this race is marked out before us. And so let's jump into this. Verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Running the race with endurance. The Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. 
They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Running because it matters. Running with a purpose. Because there's only one that receives the prize. Only one that receives that wreath to show that they are victorious in this race. For us to run like that. So the question for us this morning is, we're all in this race, and so how are we doing? How are you doing? Are you walking, daydreaming, sitting, stumbling? How are you doing? Um, Many years ago, my sister asked me to attend my oldest niece's soccer game. And she was about five, I think, at the time, five or six. And so they're out there playing, and I know it's not a race, but there is a purpose of like getting that ball into a goal, right? Or blocking the other team from getting a ball into your goal. And what was she doing? Uh, just as in any other five-year-old, they were playing patty cake in the back while like and the coach is like get the ball get the ball and they like wake up and go run after the ball but then after a while there's like a circle of them and they were just like playing duck duck goose like in a soccer game right i have to give this to her though like she was active and the christian life is active the christian life is that of endurance which means that it's persistent and that we are steady in our race this is the issue the author of the letter is bringing up to the readers Look back to chapter 10, starting in verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. In chapter 12, the writer is returning to this idea of endurance that was brought up in chapter 10 to encourage people to move forward in faith, not to shrink back, which is why the author wrote about this great cloud of witnesses in chapter 11, to remind us of who they are, to encourage our faith, to inspire us to run this race well, inspire us to action, not just to solely feel inspired, but to actively apply what we know. Because it's more than just knowing. It's also doing. It has to be fleshed out. And in order to run well, there are things that need to happen. Look back to verse 1. Let us also lay aside every weight. We need to lay aside everything, anything that slows us down. What is slowing you down? What's slowing you down? Now, oftentimes when we think about things that slow us down, we tend to think about negative things. We tend to think about sinful things, which the author will get to in a little bit. But he first starts off with this every weight. And it's not necessarily negative. Every weight can even be an innocent, permissible, allowable, honorable, praiseworthy thing. It's any weight that gets in the way of running this race well. So what is that allowable, permissible, praiseworthy, 
thing in your life that is obstructing you from running this race with endurance. And maybe that weight is tied to your personality. And Paul tells us to be all things to all people, and yet maybe too reliant on the personality to just say, like, I'm just this way. Or maybe it's your conduct in, in the way that you conduct your life. Maybe the weight is even something that is um, really, really good about you. But the scripture does say every weight. So what weight is weighing you down? Here's a picture of a Tesla S. It's uh, fully loaded. It's um, really nice, right? It, it looks comfortable. It's luxurious. It's stylish. It's, it's quiet. It has every single bell and whistle that um, Tesla offers. That, that's, that's, that's that car. Tesla entered into racing. I think it was just last year. Here's what it looks like now. What did they do? It's a totally stripped down Tesla. Completely stripped down. They laid aside every weight. Every weight. Those plush, leather, electronically adjustable seats are replaced with one aluminum racing seat. There's not even a passenger seat on there anymore. There are no back seats. There is no dashboard. There's no underlay, no carpet, no uh, insulation. There's nothing there. Gutted. What did they do? They decreased that weight by 22%. Over 1,000 pounds taken off by taking all those components out. Why? To win the race. Win this race. So that acceleration from 0 to 60 was lowered by 0.3 seconds. It's now able to go from 2.4 to like 2.1. No, that's, that's what it is now. To win the race. And it's now able to take corners better. And they've replaced different things about it. Tesla laid aside every weight for this race. And so does every other car maker who enters the race. They make it as light as possible, even if it makes it less comfortable, because I'm sure that seat's way less comfortable, even if it means they can't control the climate inside. No AC, no heating. Even if they can't listen to their favorite podcast, they can't put the car in cruise control, all that good stuff is gone. Why? There's a goal. We want to win the race. So they need to put all that extra weight, even though it is good weight, they have to put it all aside so that they can cross that finish line first with nothing holding them back. Even if it means less comfortable seats, less control of their temperature, less control of um, the cruise control, less control of the audiovisual stuff, because that's not the goal. None of those weighted items are wrong. They're actually good. They're actually pleasant and comfortable and luxurious. But it just doesn't help to win the race. See, we're, we're not usually impeded by bad things. Like, uh, uh, those of us in here, I, I think I know a lot of you here, I don't know everyone, but I think most of you are good people. 
Not, not all of you. Some of you are really, really rotten. But, <laughs> but most of you are obstructed by just innocent, allowable, permissible, praiseworthy things. Things that can very well distract us from that finish line. For example, um, family life. You're like, what? Isn't Christianity, isn't church all about like family? No, not necessarily. I mean, yes, we, uh, there's commandments about honoring your father and mother and about like fathers providing for their children and, or families in First Timothy chapter 3. Otherwise, you're worse than an unbeliever. And there's all these things about family and how you should treat your wife and how you should treat your husband in Ephesians. Like there's all this stuff about family, yes. But firstly, Christianity is about being God-centered. And as long as the family is truly God-centered, then yes, there are these secondary priorities after the first priority is met, namely your communion with God. And so does family prevent us from evangelism, discipleship, outreach, worship? Does it prevent those things? And if it does, then there needs to be a weight shift. The, the Bible does teach us to love and care for our family, but this is something that Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I understand this is a hyperbole, but I do want to point out that it's not a hyperbole for everyone because this is actually literal for some. There are um, Muslim converts in our church and Hindu converts in our church. And this is literal, what has happened. People who convert from other religions sometimes deal with this with their families. And some of you have met these brothers and sisters in our midst. And they've been disowned because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So Luke chapter 14, verse 26 is literal for some, and some of us may be holding on to some things rather than laying them aside. How about another allowable, permissible, good thing? Praiseworthy even, like your work. You've made a great career path for yourself. You've climbed that corporate ladder, or you own a successful business. See, that work is allowable, and it is praiseworthy. And it is really good to work hard. The Bible encourages that. But we also know that it can damage one's faith when it's abused. And it can hurt one's family. So we also can see if things are not prioritized with being God first, how those things can kind of make us not live our life as Christ wants. Theology. Surprising maybe for some, but theology is a great thing. It's great to know the Bible inside and out. But haven't you met that individual who can pass a Bible exam and a theology exam, but you question if they know Jesus? And I think we've all met people like that, those Bible thumper types who are just like no fun to be around. And when you do a Bible study with them, they're just not a joy to be around because they pick on everything that everyone else is saying and they can't get along with other people. And they're so consumed with being right that they, they lose sight of how they are portraying Jesus. Doctrine is very important. But 
we can't lose sight of Jesus in the process. And so that's just another thing, a, a good thing that can be a weight. And so this weight can be anything innocent, right? Like hobbies, recreation, exercise, travel, food, anything allowable, but that good stuff is usually the thing that makes people stumble. And it's usually not the bad stuff. And so all of our race records in the past, if you think about just the race records of the past, whether that's in skiing or cars or running or whatever it is, why are those records continually being broken? There are many, many reasons why. But one big reason, one huge reason, is that we've gone lighter. Right? Those wood skis back um, like 60 years ago are not that heavy anymore. Those shoes are lighter. All the gear that football players wear is lighter, and they're faster now. Everything is lighter. And so those heavier things have been laid aside. So what is the so-called good thing, permissible, allowable, praiseworthy thing that is holding you back, that is weighing you down? And then there's a continuation in verse 1 where it says, let, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, which clings, clings so closely. And so, yes, that thing, sin, the, the obvious thing, that's, that's a huge impediment in weighing us down. And there are things that are just obviously wrong to continue racing. The Tesla racing team would never put someone who is influence, under the influence of alcohol or drugs behind the wheel. Like, that, that would make no sense. Like, this is obvious, like a sinful thing. Like, you wouldn't do that. They would never put a, 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 a former terrorist who mowed down people with their vehicle in their car. Like, they, they wouldn't do that. And so there are things that would be obviously a hindrance to us in the race. And that stuff definitely needs to be laid aside. And so what are those things for us? Love of money. Covetousness. Pride. Unbelief, the absence of faith. What is that big thing that is laying us, that we're not laying that weight down? Verse 2 Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. We need to look to Jesus, consider Jesus, so that we don't grow weary or faint-hearted. That's how we endure. It's not by looking at those witnesses in chapter 11, but it's by fixating on Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, because those in chapter 11, they weren't perfect. That's a messed up group of people. Jacob is a messed up dude, right? Uh, Rahab is a messed up gal. Samson, David, messed up people. All that list of people in, in chapter 11. Good group of people, but messed up. Endurance doesn't happen because of those witnesses, not because of the goal or the finish line. It happens because we're looking to Jesus. Not the family life, not the work, not those good things in our life, not that grumpy theologian. See, the grumpy theologian's goal is to cross the finish line, but they don't care if they cross it with Jesus or not. 
So our goal is to commune with Jesus, run the race with Jesus, the founder, perfecter of our faith, the only one we can look to for everything when any, any, everything around us is just falling apart. And so when you feel like giving up, consider Jesus, who endured hostility from sinners and not give up. Jesus who, is, who brings glory. Jesus is the one who sanctifies. You look back to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 for that. He's the only perfecter of our faith. And for those of you who don't feel you're running the race well, how do you begin to run that race well? Because we have a tendency to think that we do it. So if I only just become more moral, if I only serve more, if I only give more, if I only just do more, you're going to get really frustrated because it is Christ who's the perfecter of our faith and the only way to do it is to look to Jesus, to commune with Jesus, and to actively look so that when he points out that weight needs to be set aside, then do it. Even if it's a good one, that you need to lay aside that weight. To actively lay aside that sin that clings so closely and you look to Jesus who is saying like, that sin, I died for it and you got to give that to me and we can move forward. We can move forward in this race. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And so we know that that struggle against sin is very, very real. And that there is and will be a struggle because it says not when you, when you struggle or if you struggle. It says in your struggle. It just knows that you're in it. And so you'll notice these following verses from that from, from there, it's, it, from verse 4, it's this word discipline, and it's mentioned multiple times. And it's something that is required for maturity. That we are God's children by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and we have turned from sin to look to Jesus, just like the Christians who have come before us. And throughout history, nothing has changed in regards to this struggle against sin being part of our spiritual journey. All of the folks in chapter 11 dealt with it too. And so the author originally wrote this letter because there were people shrinking back. And that struggle was real, back to chapter 10. And just like it is for you and for me, that we need to move forward like those in chapter 11, not to look at them as an answer, but to look at them for inspiration, to look at them for encouragement, but ultimately to look to Jesus Christ, who endured it all to the point of shedding his blood. And it's a struggle. And it'll take everything in you to resist and walk with Jesus. Verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And so, we must remember the exhortation, and in other words, the word of God. Because here the writer is quoting from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. And we won't be able to quote the scriptures if we don't know the scriptures. And so what, are these, what is this verse telling us? Essentially, don't be careless. Don't be inconsiderate about the Lord's discipline. Don't regard lightly because God's in control in those struggles as well as those victories in life. And the other part of verse 5, nor be weary when reproved by him, meaning don't lose heart, don't get discouraged when disciplined. Because God loves those he disciplines, verse 6. And we tend to learn more in those times of 
valley time, more than those mountaintop times. Even those are, those are more fun. But it's these tough times where, where we grow. And know that the Lord disciplines those that he loves. And that's how you know your gods, is discipline. And yes, God is a protector. God is a provider. But God can't let us get by doing whatever we want, however we want to live. And no good parent does that. A good parent can't be indifferent about their child's life. And, and they discipline out of love, just as God molds and he shapes us through discipline. He treats us as his child because we are his child. We are disciplined, which is not an easy topic to talk about. We, we'd much rather look at the other attributes of God, like protecting and providing and uh, grace and generosity and love and all this. But when we're talking about discipline or judgment, those those things, those are ongoing experiences we have with God, and those are strong indicators of our relationship with God. You know, in, um, in my daughter's school, I, I have four of them, four daughters, not four schools, four daughters, um, and you have to volunteer, I, I think it's like 50 hours a year. I don't remember what it is, but it's, it's more than I usually do. So I, I have to chaperone these field trips because that's the way I can get like a chunk of it because I can't take like a week to like tutor or a week to do lunch or whatever. I just need to get like a chunk of it done at a time so I can just kind of like move on, right? So I, I, I've chaperoned all four of their grades and my second daughter's class is the most well-behaved class. I don't have to worry about them at all. They're like a bunch of angels. They're sweet. The other three kids, class of demons, like all of them evil, if you don't believe in sin, you just have to chaperone a field trip. That's all you got to do. So I am always given the worst kids in the class. Always. Teacher sees my name on there. Oh, yeah, let's give Albert that guy. Let's, let's, give him, let's give him these. I always get the worst kids. But they're always listening. Because I know how to handle them. But it's not because I'm anything special. And I actually don't even discipline them because I don't love them. But I do discipline my daughter. And so with my daughter, I'm like, um, don't go off on your own. Take a friend with you to the bathroom. Don't play with those things in the gift shop. You're making a mess for the poor lady that works there. The other kids, they're making a mess. Well, I don't care. I'm going to have that cashier yell at you. Great. I'm going to have fun doing it. In fact, there was this one kid, first field trip of the year. He comes to me, and he, he's like, Albert. I was like, I'm not Albert to you. I'm not your friend. I am Misterly, Masterly, or Pastorly. But that's it. That's it. You can't, if you call me Albert, I ignore you. And so he was like, okay, uh, uh, Mr. Lee. Yes. I'm going to run away from you on the field trip. Right when I get off the bus, I'm going to take off. Because then you're going to get in trouble. And you're going to spend the whole field trip looking for me instead of chaperoning all these other kids. And I, was like, and I went down to him and I said, you have to understand something. I don't care. In fact, if you get kidnapped and I don't see you ever again, I don't care. So you do whatever you want. I'm not looking for you and I'm not doing anything. Guess who was right by me like a puppy the whole time? That kid. So just don't let me chaperone any of your kids' field trips because that's, that's how I do things. 
but I disciplined my own daughter. If something happened, I set her straight, right? It is for discipline that you have to endure. God treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. See, if there's no discipline, then you're really not his kid. Discipline from God is a sign that you're his kid. See, children know what they want. They don't know what they need. Often. And there are a bunch of people who can give kids what they want. This is how I get kids to comply with me on field trips. I give them what they want. But I don't discipline them. I, I don't really care. that They're not my kid. But I get to the cafeteria and say, if you guys behave, I'm going to buy that bag of cookies and we're going to split it. Whoever doesn't behave doesn't get a cookie. That's that. And they all want to be in my, my, my group because they're like, oh, Mr. Lee's the one that gives cookies or ice cream or chips or whatever. I want, and the teachers come pull me aside and like, hey, we're not supposed to give that to the kids. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But in my mind, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm with them. You're not the one chaperoning. You need me. I'm going to do it the way I want. And so... And so we can give what they want, but we don't give what they need. And this is what grandparents do. <laughs> right? Grandparents are like, oh, um, uh, yeah, you want the candy here? You want this here? You want to go here? Go, oh, go, go, good. For, and then when they're at the end of the time, oh, we're done. We're going to go home. And that's what aunts and uncles do with their nephews and nieces. And that's, that's what happens, is that they, we, we tend to give kids what they want rather than what they need. And the formation of the child is primarily the responsibility of the parents. And in fact, when someone else attempts to discipline your kid, there are people who take a really huge offense to that. Right? And you, I, I mostly see them at Whole Foods for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> Like you see a kid like opening a bag of chips and oh you shouldn't do that. Don't discipline my kid. Like your kid is stealing. Like who's right? Like but people take it that's partly why I don't like, okay, you're your kid. I'm not I don't need you getting mad at me. I don't need you assaulting me. Like I don't need that. But there is actually a privilege of discipline because it distinguishes between a believer, God's child, and a non believer, not God's child. And this discipline is a sign of adoption. It's a sign of belonging. Discipline from God is a sign that we are his child. And so without it, you're just like a commoner, which is the antonym of holy. And you and I are holy. Verse 9, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? It's totally normal for loving parents to discipline their children. And children cannot respect or honor parents who don't discipline them because there is no platform to share that wisdom with the child without it. And so you've seen undisciplined kids, how they bring agony, anguish, shame upon themselves, upon their parents, and disciplined kids bring peace. And it's what distinguishes one's own kids versus strangers. It's this belonging. Verse 10, For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. See, there's a purpose to the discipline that we may share his holiness. 
that we're set apart. We're not common. We're his. We're his kid. Not just another person. We belong to God. And you notice this phrase for a short time in reference to earthly folks. And you and I know like time passes by so fast. I, I have a teenager now who is um, going to be an adult soon. And um, I, I think my, my power is out at my house. And um, I was like, hey, how are you doing in the bathroom there? I lit a bunch of candles. And she was like, I can't do my makeup. And I was thinking, technology really has influenced us. I never even thought about that. You, we think about like iPads and digital things and how that changes kids now. But like when electricity was created, how that changed things for people back then. Because like they did, probably didn't have to worry about makeup. Because you couldn't do it. Like you, you couldn't do it, right? So I don't know how I got on that. Anyway, my teenager is going to be an adult really soon. And some of you carried her as a baby. Some of you saw her grow up as a toddler into a little lady. And she's taking care of some of your babies and toddlers now as a babysitter. And she has a totally different babysitting childcare philosophy than me, so please don't worry. Like we're, we're, she's trained by her mother, not me in that regard, so it's, good. it's okay. Things last for such a short time. It goes so fast. And parental discipline was what we thought was best, even though we know it's not perfect. See, my goal as a parent ever since I became a father was that my children would go to less therapy than I did because of my parents. Like, that's my goal. Like, if they go to less therapy than I did, then praise God. But God's discipline, it is perfect. And it is for our good. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so this is what discipline produces, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. See, there are moments that seem really painful, but we need to keep in mind that our present discipline, if that's what it is, will yield fruit if we endure through it. And in that moment of discipline, it seems like nothing is happening because you just got disciplined. You're grounded or whatever is happening. But then if you sit with it, you, you tend to learn from it. And discipline yields fruit. And that fruitfulness always takes time. You can never plant a seed and then the next day see that the tree is full of fruit. Like it doesn't happen that way. It takes time. It, it, it needs Training, it needs pruning, it needs watering, it needs sunshine, it needs all those types of things. And so, same thing with our discipline. It's not for us just to experience it, but to actually be trained by it, to learn from it. That when we, when we discipline kids, that we don't just do it just to get them to do something right, but that they're learning through the process so that they become who God created them to be. And it takes time. And to recognize that that discipline is coming from God who loves you a lot. That he loves you enough to discipline you so that it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Not just disciplined, but you're trained by the discipline. And then we move from the discipline to discipleship by being trained in it. Let's pray.
God, we're thankful for that discipline, that identifier that knows that we belong to you. And God, I pray for anyone who is struggling with the race. I pray, God, that you would help them see the weights that are weighing them down, whether that is a allowable, permissible, praiseworthy, innocent thing, or if it's just someone, something that is just sinful, that needs to be dropped. So God, would you empower them to do that? Would you have them focus their eyes on you? And for anyone who does not know you, Lord, I pray for their heart to be softened and their minds to be open to you, that they will look to you as the author and perfecter of our faith, and that by their faith they would relinquish the things that they're holding on to so tightly, all those weights that are weighing them down, would they release them to you? In Jesus' name, amen.